We'll go ahead and find Hosea chapter 10, and don't fear, we are not skipping chapter 9, okay? I struggled with how to best present this tonight, because in chapter 9, in the first uh, part of chapter 10, it's largely a repeat of what we have been seeing. Uh, God promising judgment. And that the time of judgment for Israel and Judah has arrived. And we've seen that repeated theme chapter after chapter. Chapter 9 repeats that once again. Uh, we're still going to cover it. What we're going to do after we get into the points, we're going to drop back and see some of the things in chapter 9 that, again, have been repeated from previous chapters. Okay? But what I want to do is, uh, well, first of all, I need to give y'all your study guide tonight. Looking tonight at the subject matter, fallow ground. Fallow ground. And Glenn, if you don't mind, just a hair. I'm, I think I'm a little too loud. Am I a little loud? Seems like a little loud. So, is that better? Is that better? Okay, good. Thank you, Glenn. Fallow ground. So find verse 12. Verse 12. Hosea 10, 12. Hosea 10-12. Did everybody on this side get one? says in uh, verse 12, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness upon us. You know, the world still feels the influence of the great Welch Revival which flamed across the tiny little country of Wales at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, but not many people remember how that revival began. Uh, the young people were gathered together at a small church in Wales. They were meeting together for a prayer meeting, and a young lady stood up in the church, very humble, sincere young lady, and she simply said, Oh, how I love Jesus. And God used a simple testimony like that. And uh, spiritual fire came down on that prayer meeting. It spread through the whole church. It spread through that town, through the country of Wales. And it's literally a revival that jumped continents. Uh, as Earl Carnes writes in his book, An Endless Line of Splendor, he said, The church is in need of perennial revival because of recurrent spiritual decline. I want you to listen to that phrase again. The church is in need of perennial revival because of recurrent spiritual decline. We're always in need of renewal and revival. Why? Because our hearts tend to grow cold and complacent, right? You know, we just came through a study of, of the churches the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 through 3. Remember that? Mm -hmm. The Lord was calling His churches there to revival and telling them what was wrong. He was commending them for what was right in their fellowship and then He was condemning them for what was wrong in their fellowship and then He gave each of them a challenge what they were to do about it. Remember the church of Ephesus? He said, you're still doing everything that you've always been doing and you're doing it well. 
you're, you're doing the work of the church, but your hearts have grown cold. You don't love me anymore like you used to. And you need to restore, you need to renew your first love. You need to go back to your first love and renew that. And if you don't, I'm going to take your church away from you. I'm going to remove the candlestick, which was the church. Each of the other churches, remember, he he told them, uh, many of them were compromising doctrinally, or they were compromising with the world. And so again, he had a challenge for each one of those churches. What was he calling them to? He was calling them to repentance and renewal. They needed to change. Folks, what would he say to us today? What would he say to the church in America? What would he say to the churches in Concord? What would he say to us? What would he say to you? Is there renewal and revival needed in your life? And you know, for renewal to take place, there's got to be change. It's like Henry Blackaby said in Experiencing God, you cannot stay where you are and go with God. And he explained himself saying when a person encounters God, it always involves adjustments and change. And that's true, isn't it? What do we want to do though? We always tend to just want to do something quick, right? It's kind of like the Nike logo. You know, just, just do it. We just want to do something. Give me a checklist. Give me something I can do real quick and, and address this. And oftentimes with the Lord, it's not that way. Because the Lord is wanting to spend time, wanting you to spend time with Him. He's wanting to spend time with you addressing your heart, your character, changing your inside. And that takes time, doesn't it? That's what he's calling for. Changing our hearts. That's got to be first. Life change can only take place as heart change takes place. And that's what God has been telling His people in Hosea. And specifically here in verse 12 of chapter 10. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. Now let's remember the background. These words are directed mainly to the northern kingdom at this point. The northern kingdom was Israel, sometimes referred to as Ephraim a primary tribe of the northern kingdom, sometimes referred to also as Samaria. And these words are directed to them mainly. And what was their sin? Their sin was idolatry. They loved their idolatry. They worshipped the calves, the golden calves that Jeroboam set up, and they had turned to Baalism. Baalism was a Canaanite fertility religion that involved sexual immorality, hoping that with Baal and his female counterpart, Ashtoreth, they would see the, the, the prostitutes of Baal engaged with people in sexual acts. That would motivate Baal in the clouds above to be involved in sexual activity with Asherah. And then fertility would come to the earth. It was a pagan fertility cult. So they loved the golden calves and they loved Baalism. And God was calling them to change. They looked outwardly prosperous in the northern kingdom. But their hearts were far from God. Their hearts were corrupt. And God didn't like what He saw. But the good news was that they didn't have to stay where they were. God was inviting them to change before it was too late. And you know, that's good news for people today too, isn't it? God's inviting you to change, to repent, to come back to Him, to seek Him while there's time. I want you to see, first of all, tonight, uh, in your outline... 
The point that there is a condition to be feared. There is a condition to be feared. And what is that condition? It's fallow ground. A heart that is not tender towards God and the things of God is like fallow ground. This is language that comes right off of the farm. Life is like soil. Jesus told a parable about that. How the Word of God is like seed that falls into soil. And some soil is hard and seed, the Word of God, doesn't penetrate. Others shallow. A crop comes up quickly, but there's no depth. And the plant withers and there's no fruit. Other soil has weeds and thorns and so forth that choke out the seed. And other ground is good soil that produces a crop at various levels. That's how life is. But their ground, their hearts, were fallow. What's, what's fallow ground? It's neglected ground. Unprepared and neglected ground. Ground that over the winter time maybe has even begun to grow weeds. It's been laying dormant. Anybody in here do a garden every year? Anybody? I know y'all do. Buddy brings me those little cherry tomatoes. Anybody else? No? Okay. I, I do as well. Does that count if it's in a little box? Sure, if you're growing stuff. Yeah, I'm a gardener. You're a gardener. <laughs> but you know, my, my garden spot right now, it's fallow ground. It's been laying dormant over the winter. You can look out there and you can see a difference in my garden plot from the rest of the yard, but, but you can tell it's, it's dormant. And weeds and dead-looking grass kind of growing up there, right? It's not tilled. It's not ready for planting. That's what fallow ground is. And he's saying that's their spiritual condition. That's the condition of their heart. I think of the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.16. Uh, Jeremiah says, or God says through Jeremiah, I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. And then in Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, God, God says, Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and they walked after emptiness and became empty? You see, you become like what you worship, Right? They chased after emptiness, became empty. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt. I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land, and my inheritance you made an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your son's son I will contend. For cross to the coastlands of Katim and see and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has ever been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed its gods when they were not gods at all? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to dig out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That was their condition. That's what Israel and Judah had become. Fallow ground. Neglected ground. How far they have fallen. And we've seen that all through the book of Hosea, the things that they've been doing. 
So again, they, they neglected God. You see that as a sub-point on your outline. They neglected God. Now, turn back to chapter 9 because we're going we're gonna to see some of the ways, and again, chapter 9 is kind of more of the same of what we've seen earlier in the book. Look at verse 1. He says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. They've turned to Baalism. Baalism, again, prostitution was inherent within Baalism. They, they've grown to love Baalism. And Baal, who's a false god, a Canaanite deity. And then in verses 2 through 4, we see God telling them that judgment is coming. He says, Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only, and it shall not come to the house of the Lord. God's telling them judgment is coming. Because of their neglect of Him and their love for Baal, God's going to judge them. And He's telling them they're going to end up in bondage again, just like in the days of the Egyptian bondage. But now this time, the bondage is going to be at the hands of the Assyrians, for the ten northern tribes of Israel. And then a hundred years after that, the two southern tribes, Judah, will be judged at the hands of the Babylonians in the 70-year exile. And God's telling them that even if they make it out alive, look at what He says in verse 6. For behold, they're going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. If they, even if they make it out alive after the captivity, verse 6 is saying uh, that the promised land is going to be turned into nothing more than a wasteland. When Assyria is taken, when the, when the ten tribes are taken away by Assyria, and then when the Babylonians take Judah away for the 70 years, the, the promised land is going to become barren briar patches with, with thorns. It's going to be like a wasteland. Think of that. The promised land that God had given to them and promised such good to them if they would obey the terms of the covenant, the promised land is going to just be a big wasteland while they're away in exile. And then verses 7 to 9 points out that, again, the day of reckoning is at hand. It's judgment day. And as we've seen, they deserve this. Verse 7 says, The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fouler snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. He's saying here, for some, the words of the prophets have become foolish. They, they look at their spiritual leaders as just fools, and their spiritual leaders have become fools. And they scoff at the words of the prophets and the teachers of the law. And again, at the same time, these men of God who were supposed to lead them are guilty too. Many of them, just like the people, have become corrupt. 
Verse 10 points out that when they were young, just like Jeremiah 2 said, they were dedicated to God and they followed God, but now they've turned. He says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Early days that were precious to God in His relationship with Him, but they have turned. Then beginning in verse 11 and going down through the end of the chapter, what does God tell them? He's telling them it's over for them. That even if they had kids... Kids being your legacy, your future, yet there will be no future. There will be no future. And in verse 16, it's the language of a vineyard again. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Remember what Isaiah 5 said about Israel? that they were like a vineyard that the Lord Himself had planted and He had given that vineyard everything that that vineyard needed to produce good fruit. But He said, instead of producing good fruit, they had only produced stink berries. That's literally the Hebrew. They, God looked for good fruit because He had done everything good for them so He could expect good fruit. But because of the way they've corrupted themselves and turned to idols and loved idols and loved Baal, the fruit of their lives is nothing but stink berries. This is what they've become. And, and so again, the land, he's telling them, uh, in verse 17, my God will reject them because they've not listened to him. They shall be wonders among the nations. The promised land that they entered under Joshua's leadership is going to be taken away from them. Or maybe I should say, they're going to be taken away from the land. And what are they going to become? They're going to become wanderers among the nations. Folks, again, just think how far they have fallen. Think of all of the promises of God to them, how he was, going to, he was going to lead them into the land and they were going to be His people. They were going to be a light for the nations. But there were terms of the covenant they had to obey if they wanted to see all this. And if they disobeyed, He told them up front all the bad things that would happen to them. And they didn't listen. They did all those bad things. And so God took them out of the land sent them into judgment and exile. Just like He promised He would do. They lost what God had promised. Now, as we see later on, it's not over uh, for Judah. They're going to be brought back because He preserves those two tribes because it's through Judah that the Messiah is going to come. But I mean, you, you read what's going on in Hosea and you think of such wasted potential. How God would have used them. How God would have moved in their midst had they only been faithful to Him and sought Him. Wasted potential. It's sad, really. And chapter 10 continues the same way. They brought forth fruit only for themselves. He says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit, his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And his country, as his country improved, he improved his pillars. You're not talking about good altars here. Again, he's talking about idolatrous altars. The more prosperous they became, the more they forgot God. Is that a danger when people get comfortable? They forget God, don't they? 
They became selfish and thought only of themselves. And so the Lord goes on to say here in chapter 10, He's going to wipe out their false places of worship. And again, they're going to be a people without a land and without a king. But sadly, as verse 5 points out, what, what they're mourning over, instead of mourning over this, what are they mourning over? They're mourning over those golden calves. <coughs> now, boy, you talk about blindness. Instead of mourning over their relationship with God and how God's judging them, they're, they're mourning because God's going to destroy their idols that they trust in. That's what makes them sad. <coughs> And what's ironic about that, have their idols delivered them? Have their idols saved them? No. They're mourning over that which has done them no good. And yet they're mourning the loss of that. And then when God's judgment begins, uh, when God's judgment begins, it'll be so bad that they will cry for the mountains to fall on them. Let's, let's read on. Uh, for now they will say we have no king. Verse 3, we do not fear the Lord, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what can he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the, to the great king. Their, their, their false gods are going to be destroyed. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Uh, Samaria's king shall perish, like a twig on the face of the waters, the high places of Avim, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us into the hills, fall on us. Crying out to the mountains and the hills to fall on, on them. Does that ring a bell? Do you, see, do you find that phrase anywhere else in the Bible? Revelation chapter 9, right? And the situation is the same between the two passages in many ways. Because here they're crying for the mountains and the hills to fall on, and yet they are still continuing in their sin and immorality. They're refusing to repent of their sin and immorality. And what's Revelation 9 say about in the time of tribulation when God's judgment's being poured out? What are unbelievers still going to be doing? They're going to be refusing to repent of their sin, and yet they're crying for the mountains and hills to fall on. Imagine that. Doomsday's come. Destruction's come. The day of judgment has come. But people love their sin so much, uh, they're unwilling to repent of it while calling on the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of Him who sits on the throne. But again, in Hosea, in Revelation, they're still refusing to repent. And so what do you see? You see that human nature hasn't changed that much, has it? Human nature hasn't changed. All of this describes how they neglected God, turned away from Him, and so their judgment is fully deserved. Folks, a neglected spiritual life is dangerous. It's dangerous. You know, Jesus told a story about a man who swept his life clean but didn't fill it with the Lord. And he compared the situation. Remember that story he told? Where a demon is cast out but then he goes and finds friends of his. He comes back to the house. He finds that the man has swept the house clean, but the man has left his house empty. And so that demon, along with all of his friends, moved back in. And the, 
end result is worse than even than before. And let's, let's not miss out on what Jesus was telling in the New Testament. Because again, he was talking about Israel. They, after the exile, they had swept their house clean after coming back from Babylonian exile. That is, they had swept the land of idolatry. And then the Pharisees as a group came into being during this time. The separated ones. And they put a lot of laws and regulations in place so that people wouldn't turn back to idolatry again. So they swept the land clean, but they left their hearts empty. Jesus said they were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And what's Jesus pointing out? An empty heart is a dangerous thing. Before the exile, their hearts were idolatrous and corrupt. In the New Testament, their hearts were empty. They've gone from corruption in their hearts to emptiness in their hearts. And the later state, Jesus said, is worse than the first. Neglect. Neglect brings judgment. Neglect brings judgment. Dormant soil becomes hard. It grows weeds. The weeds take over. That's a picture of the human heart. A human heart will not stay empty. If you don't put the right things into the human heart and mind, you'll end up putting the wrong things in if you're neglecting God and neglecting your heart, I want you to understand what a dangerous place you're in. Another sub-point we see here, they were like soil that was full of weeds. You know, the Bible tells us we're to seek first the kingdom of God. But what were they doing and what do we do so often? We do the opposite. We seek the things of the world. And then because we seek the things of the world, we worry about the things of the world, right? We stress about the things of the world, temporal things, while we ignore eternal things. And these things of the world will never bring us joy. They'll never bring lasting satisfaction. They'll never help us in the end. In fact, John says in 1 John 2, Love not the world, nor the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world and the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world it is going to pass away one day. And those who love the things of the world is going to pass away with those things they trust in We put so much focus on the wrong things and we neglect our hearts. We neglect our spirit. We neglect what's going to live forever. And, and, and that's our soul. And folks, that is something that the Bible is telling us we need to fear. If we've got to a point in our lives where our focus is on the wrong things, on the things that break God's heart, on the things that amount to disobedience to God and neglect of Him. If that's where our focus is and we're neglecting where our focus really should be, that is a condition to be feared because there's no good outcome. The judgment of God is coming. But he's not done with them. Secondly, I want you to see that there is a command to be followed. Looking down at verse 12 again. What's he telling them to do? Break up the fallow ground. Begin preparing your heart. Renewal can come in your life, but you've got to prepare yourself. They're not prepared. God's calling on them to repent. Now, I want you to imagine this. He knows judgment's coming for them. 
And, and God knows they're not, many of them are not going to change, but He's still calling on them to change. He's still calling on them to come to Him, which reveals what? God is patient. This is a rebellious people, but God is still calling on them to change. He still loves them. And there can still be a future for them if they will only come back to it. But they've got to deal with everything in their life that has produced neglect and everything that has produced the fallow ground. They have to be willing to look themselves squarely in the mirror, spiritually speaking, and deal with what's wrong in their hearts before God. They've got to be honest about their condition. And they've got to be willing to repent of their condition. And I wonder if I'm speaking to somebody tonight that needs to do that. You know, the book of James says, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Maybe you need to face your condition tonight. Your heart's like fallow ground. Soil that's becoming neglected and hard. And you need to start drawing near to God. You need to be meditating on the Word of God, asking the Holy Spirit to work in a fresh way in your life. You need to be in prayer. Uh, you need to be seeking the Lord. Maybe He's dealing with you about certain areas of your life. Maybe there's something He's been convicting you about. Maybe a an attitude problem or, or a gossip problem, unkind words, lies, or some action that you're doing that you know is wrong. Maybe there's a stumbling block in your life. Something that unless it is dealt with, you're not going to have spiritual renewal in your life. Am I speaking to anybody tonight that maybe needs to address some of those areas? What's holding you back? Are you willing to plow up the fallow ground and do what's needed to come back to God and to get close to Him again? Maybe all the bad things are coming out of your life. Jesus talked in Mark 7 about bad things come out of our life. Lying, unforgiveness, sexual sin, worldliness. And what did Jesus say? All of these things begin in the heart. They reflect what's in the heart. Right? So what was Jesus saying? We've got to examine our hearts. And we've got to deal with whatever's in there that's wrong that's showing on the outside. We've got to deal with it. What he's asking, what he's not saying is just have a little checklist. Oh, let me do this real quick and do that real quick. What he's calling on us to do is go back and get right with God. Pursue the relationship again. That's the heart of the matter. Pursue the relationship again. And that takes time. That takes effort. That takes hard work. Then he says, not only, you know, plow up the fallow ground, but sow righteousness. Break up the soil, then plant. You don't just break up the ground, but what do you do? You plant seed. You plant the right kind of seed. In this case, it's the Word of God. Plow up the fallow ground. You deal with your hard heart, the neglected soil of your heart. You plant the seed of the Word. And then you seek the Lord. He's telling them to seek Him. What have they been seeking? They've been seeking alliances with other nations and kings that they thought could help them. They would, they would constantly run down to Egypt for help. Ahab even ran over to Assyria to Tiglath-Pileser III and asked asked for the Assyrian king to come in and help him. They were trusting in man. And they were trusting in what they thought people could do for them. And they were always trying to do something like that. 
trusting in the wrong thing. And what's God telling them here? You need to get back to trusting me. He says, For it is time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. You know, Isaiah told them the same thing, right? Seek the Lord. And Isaiah added a note of urgency about it. He said, Isaiah said, Seek the Lord while He may be found. What's the implication? There may come a time that you won't find Him. Maybe too late after God brings His judgment into your life. Some people think they have time and they don't. And so again, what God is inviting them to do here in Hosea 10, 12 and the surrounding verses, take an honest look at their lives. Where are they? Where are their hearts? Where are their affections? Where is their spiritual neglect? Are they going to address that? And are they going to do the right things to come back to the Lord? And he says, seek him, keep on seeking him until he comes, that he may come and rain righteousness on you. Great promise there, right? Great promise. They can still have the Lord come and rain righteousness on them. If they will hear his voice and his call before it's too late. Folks, examine your own heart. Is, is it dormant? Have you neglected your heart before God? Do you have a hard heart? Is your life without good spiritual fruit? What do you need to do? You need to break up the phylogram. You need to cultivate your heart to, towards the things of God. And you need to stay at it. You need to avoid letting your heart sit dormant because you're giving the devil an opportunity to sow weeds. And you need to stop it. And after breaking up your heart, preparing your heart for the things of God, you need to sow the right kinds of seeds in your heart. Give your heart and mind to God's Word, to the things of God, seek the Lord, and abide in Christ and keep abiding in You know what? You can do that. Just like the end of this verse says, you'll come and rain righteousness upon you. There can be hope. But to experience that, there must be repentance and there must be change. And so often times, that's what people are unwilling to do. Any comments or questions? Were, maybe you were raising your hand a moment ago just to say, yeah, I agree, or did you have a question? Oh, no, no. <laughs> I agree. Okay. <laughs> I thought that's what you meant. Like, yeah, I'll give a witness to that. <laughs> Richard? Mariella and I, we went, uh, we went down to see the pastor, and we, we, had, uh, we had a couple acres of land, so we went to the pastor and said, I believe God would uh, have, have us to bless the church. So he said, how so? So we had, uh, I said, well, we got some good farmland. Uh, had to divide the land up into different families. So this time we could have that plot and that plot and that plot. We'd all be free. Mm -hmm. But uh, so they came and they planted and everything. <laughs> but then they didn't, uh, well, I think they didn't, uh, Weed <laughs> it didn't work, mm -hmm. uh, so we had the weeds taken over, and it uh, lasted for a year or two. But then, it, you know, it, was, uh, it seemed like a good idea. But <laughs> 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 
It, it's a good analogy to our hearts, spiritually speaking. Isn't it? Farmland and the outcome of farmland. What what happens with it? It depends on what farmer does with it. Did I hear somebody else? Just, just thinking about how much more accountable we are because we have the entire Word of God Very and good we point. have the Holy Spirit that fills us. Yes. Even though I don't understand why they didn't think about another golden calf that got the children of Israel. Surely that story had come down to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it amazes me that they follow those calves that Jeroboam set up because of what happened with the golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain and the judgment that happened after that. It's like, do you not remember your history, folks? <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I can almost picture my dad. He always thought the mule was much better to work the land than the tractor. So I can see him with that hard ground and the mules stumbling on those clots because they were hard. And I'm thinking, what a stumbling block we could be oh, yeah. if we're weedy or hard-hearted because yep. the world wants to see a soft, pliable, obedient heart. Yep. They really do yep. want to see a different sure. being. Amen. But going back to your, your previous point, you think of how much more we have today. Right. The, the new covenant and what God has revealed beyond the Old Testament, the whole new covenant. And Scripture says to whom much is given, much, much is required. Is We're more accountable today. Yes, sir. And again, we have the Holy Spirit with us who promised to be with us and not leave us. I'm sure he thinks about it sometimes. We can get in some trouble. <laughs> I'm But he is faithful. No sure. matter what, he is yeah. so faithful. I think a lot of times when we're saved, and then we think it's all, everything's all right, and so we're standing still. And we don't stand there. Never in the Christian life that we stand still. We're going to go backwards. Yeah. And I can think of times in my life that I probably went backwards. Yeah. And we either go forward mm -hmm. or we're going to go backwards. Yeah. Away from the Lord. Yeah. Too many people view salvation, mm -hmm. the time when they were saved, as sort of the end of the journey. Ha, ah, I'm saved now. I can just sit down and relax and fold my arms. That's the beginning of the journey. Okay, now you're reconciled to God. Now you're forgiven and saved. Your spiritual journey begins now, in a sense. So does the testing. You what? So does the testing. Yes. Yeah. It always amazes me that you can read something Way back on. Mm -hmm. Now you look at today, and that goes. Oh yeah, yeah, yep. that's so true. It, like I said earlier tonight, human nature hadn't changed that much, right? Mm -hmm. I was talking about Revelation nine and how they were not repenting, but saying, "Come and follow us." Same thing. These folks were saying. Yeah. Human nature hasn't changed, and mm -hmm. we we repeat the same things over and over again. That was going to be my comment. It's almost like reading today's newspaper here. It's just different, char different characters, different people. Yeah. Just enjoying the Bible recap and, and starting, I'm like, no, nothing's changed. We've just made it worse, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you think, why? Why, why can't we? Why can't we learn? Learn is the key word, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We compare modern times with the world when we read the Bible, right? Like mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. But how often do we read about Daniel or Abraham and say, I want to be like that? Sure. I want to be I want to be that faithful. I want to be a Paul. Because they refuse to be like the world around them. That's right. That's right. I have 
say that's why I'm here. I have driven by this church a hundred times, and um, and my my uh, my family teaches me um, outside because I don't watch the news. Mm-hmm. But I think my big problem right now is worry because there's just I mean I've looked up so many churches in the area to go to, and you know there's you know homosexuality and. Um, you know, just, you know, so many things that aren't supposed to be in the church. And then when I say that, people look at me and go, well, what's wrong with you? You know, why don't you accept this, you know? And I, and I have really started to worry about life and, and, and Christianity in general, you know. I said, i got to go to church. <laughs> I need my ground again. Amen. Amen. The churches today are like those churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Yeah. Several of those churches had begun to compromise with the world around them. And that's what we're seeing in churches and in pulpits today. Compromise with the world around you. And it invites the judgment of God. Pastor, there was an article today about Wheaton College. I saw that. Yes, I saw that. Yes. What question? Don't tell. I don't there. What? <laughs> That's where Billy Graham went. Right. But anyway, what they've gone with is, what's it called? The woke agenda, some of the, the woke, woke agenda. agenda. Yep. Yeah. yeah, the article was talking about how really among Christian colleges and universities, Wheaton has kind of been viewed as sort of like the Harvard mm-hmm. of Christian right, universities. Right. It's like the pinnacle. And the history of Wheaton standing firm for the faith and now how they're just beginning to cave on, on things and um, woke things. and So, yeah, I, I, that article was in, interesting in a sad way today to see that. Yeah.